Hello, everybody. Welcome back. This week is Parshas Mishpatim, and we're going to continue talking about the halachas of cooking on Shabbos. This is part three. So, till now, we have discussed how the halachas of cooking on Shabbos apply to Arab Shabbos, both in regard to leaving food on the fire, called Shehiyah, and to wrapping up food, which is called Hatzmana. So, now we're going to start learning about Chazara. And Chazara includes two Isurim. One is the Isser of putting food on a fire or any heat source on Shabbos. And secondly, the Isser of returning food to the fire, meaning taking something off a fire, hot plate or stove, and then putting it back. And we'll discuss what's prohibited, and we'll discuss when it's permitted. Now, I want to clarify in advance that we won't be dealing with the actual Isser of cooking on Shabbos, the Isser of Bishel just yet, because that's a problem on its own, and we're going to get to it in later weeks to discuss when there is and when there isn't, but over here, we're just discussing the Durabonon question of Chazara, putting food on the fire, or returning food to the fire, and we're going to be talking about cases where there's no problem of Bishel. For example, it's a dry food which has already been cooked or baked, or the food is already hot from before, and you're not adding any heat or anything like that. So we're talking about situations where Bishel is actually not a problem at all. Actual cooking is not an issue. It's been cooked already. It's dry. It's hot, etc. Any of those cases. And in another show, we'll learn, you know, what the halachas of Bishel are. But for now, we're just discussing putting food on the fire. So Chazal didn't allow us to put food on fire on Shabbos. Why not? So one reason is the same as we've learned before, because they were worried that we'd adjust the flame. Here it's a little bit more stringent because in the past it helps to cover the flame with a blech, but that in this case does not help. You can't put food on the fire on Shabbos, even if it's covered with a blech. Another possible reason they forbade it is because it's Mexica Bishel, it appears like cooking. So there's two possible reasons why they disallowed Chazara putting food on a fire on Shabbos. So first let's discuss what are the exceptions to this rule. Is it ever allowed to take something from the fridge and put it on a heat source on Shabbos? And the answer is yes. There are two possible ways that that's allowed. And again, we're discussing something which is dry and fully baked, like challah or kugel or schnitzel, so that bishel is not an issue. So what are the two ways you can put it on a heat source on Shabbos? So one way this is permitted is to put the food on top of a pot of food. For example, if you have a crock pot that's full of chalent, you can put food on top of the crock pot, on top of the actual pot. You can't put it inside the receptacle after the pot's been taken out. That's a regular fire. But once there's a pot on a fire, crock pot or a pot on a blech, or a pot on a flame, anything, once there's a pot on a fire or an urn, it's permitted to put food on top of that pot. The reason this is permitted is because it's so unusual to cook that way, so Chazal didn't prohibit it. Second, what's the second way that you can put food on a heat source? It's permitted to place food on top of some hot plates if they never get hot enough to cook something. How can you tell if a hot plate is hot enough to cook something? So the simple way to tell is by trying to cook an egg on the hot plate. If you take a frying pan and you put an egg in it on top of the hot plate, see if it'll cook, even if it takes a long time. If it doesn't cook at all, then it's not a cooking surface. 
and it's permitted to put food on top of it, even on Shabbos, as long as there's no official issue, because it's not a place where you can cook. And Chazal only, after, they only prohibited putting food on Shabbos on a surface which cooks or which is normal to cook on. Now, included in this is also if you happen to have another surface which has absolutely nothing to do with cooking. For example, if you have a, radi- a radiator, Right, if you have something that creates heat, which has absolutely nothing to do with cooking, cooking, it's not a cooking surface, there too you are allowed to put something which is dry, which is uh, fully cooked, has no problem with visual, that is also permitted to put food on top of it. It's similar to this, this heter of putting food on a hot plate, which can't cook because it's not a normal cooking surface. Here too, a radiator, even if it is hot enough to cook, but being that it's not a normal cooking surface, it's permitted to put food on that on Shabbos. So those are two a term. Now there, there's another heter, a third heter, which you might have observed in other people's houses where they turn over a pot or a cookie sheet on a hot plate or a stove and they put food on that, on an upside-down pot. Now this is a discussion amongst the Paiskim. Some allow it and some disallow it. So if you do do this, if you're going to rely on the lenient opinions that allow this, it does need to be something with some kind of significant height. You can't put a flat piece of metal. You can't put a uh, aluminum cookie sheet, which basically gets flattened down onto the cooking surface. That, that wouldn't help. It would have to be a something with some height to it, uh, a real metal cookie sheet with a little height. That's also That works. But that's what you would need to do to be able to apply this hat. This is a third heter, which is turning over an empty pot on top of a heat source. It's kind of the same idea, that thereby you're making it a not normal cooking surface, and that's why it's allowed. Now, there's another interesting heter, which I don't really count as one of these three, because it's something you would have to ask a rub about to know exactly how to do it. But I'm mentioning it because it's good to know so that you can, you know, you shouldn't give up on your challenge if this happens to you. I was asked more than once about, let's say, a crock pot, for example, which was turned off. It was unplugged by mistake, or it was not turned on to begin with. It, but the food was cooked. It just, you know, wasn't hot at all. So if you have a hot plate, if you happen to own a hot plate, which is set on a timer, which will turn on in the morning, which people have, you can ask a non-Jew to put the food or the the challenge on the hot plate before it goes on. So it's good to know that there's another, whenever, if you get stuck in that situation, don't give up. Don't assume that that's it. Your challenge is finished. If you happen to have a hot plate that goes on a timer, there is an option to ask a guy to put it on the hot plate before it goes on. Again, this is something, you know, you should speak to Rob just to clarify before you do a thing like that, but it's, a, it's good to know so that you don't give up and you have another option. Okay, so this is all about putting food on a fire, l'chadchiba, on Shabbos. Not that it was on a fire previously. You're taking it out of your fridge. There are three ways it can be done. It can be done on top of a pot of food, like on a top of a crock pot. It can be put on top of a hot plate, which isn't hot enough to cook on. It can put, be put on top of a surface, which is not a normal heating surface, like a radiator. And according to some skim, you can turn over a pot, an empty pot, on a hot plate and put it on top of that. And again, all this is only relevant when cooking is bishel is not a problem because it's a dry thing which has already been fully cooked. Now, when it comes to talking about taking food off the fire, hot plate or crack pot, and you want to put it back, then there are three or four conditions which are necessary to allow it. 
And we'll, Amit Hashem, get to that next week, and we'll talk about exactly what those are, conditions are. But I just want to talk about, just uh, to introduce it, when, what are situations where you take food off the fire and want to take, put it back? There are three ways this could happen. So one, very straightforward, is if you have your chalent in a crock pot and you want to take some chalent and put it back for later. That's a very straightforward case. But two, another case which comes up is if your chalent is getting very dry and you need to add hot water to your chalent, so you want to take the chalent, bring it over to the urn, and add hot water to it. So there also, that's a case where you have to know how do you take it off the, the, the hot plate or whatever you have it on and how do you put it back. And three, another case which we will, we will discuss is what happens if your fire, electricity goes out, and now the food is still hot, but it's going to get cold soon, what can you do? Here also there's an option of taking it off the crackpot, which is now turned off, or taking it off the hot plate, which has been turned off, and putting it on a neighbor's hot plate or a neighbor's blech, and that also we'll discuss. That requires the conditions of Chazara in order to be able to do it, and this is what we'll talk about next week. What are the conditions of Chazara when you take it off a heat source to be able to put it back? This week's parasha, Parashas Mishpatim, is uh, well known that its beginning of the parasha is primarily de- dedicated to monetary financial halachas. It teaches about fiscal responsibilities we have, responsibilities towards other people's possessions, not to steal, how to take care of them, the halachas of shmira, when you have taken responsibility to watch somebody else's things, how not to damage other people's possessions, and many other halachas. But the way the parasha opens is fascinating. Of all the halachas the Torah chooses to begin with, it begins with the halacha of an Eved Ivri, a Jewish slave. So this is a person who has stolen and can't pay back. So the Torah commands Bastin to sell him as a slave so that he can repay his debt. Now being a slave gives him a number of interesting halachas which set him apart from a typical Jew. Why does the Torah choose to open with this particular halacha? It's kind of it seems strange, like of all the halachas the Torah would open up mishpatim with, it's with this halacha of an evidivri. What, what, what's the significance of that? The Chavetz Chaim makes a very powerful point here, which I think sheds light on this question. The Chavetz Chaim points out that as an eved, once a, a Jewish man has been sold as an eved, as a slave, he can, and actually his, his owner, the person who bought him, can force him to marry a Shifcha Kananis, a non-Jewish woman, who is a slave as well. Now, she's partially Jewish, but she's also partially non-Jewish, and they, the Torah forbids a typical Jew, a regular Jew, is not allowed to marry a, a, a Shifcha, so much so that it's actually impossible to marry her. The marriage is totally invalid. She wouldn't even require a get if he tried. And the Ramam says that this is the worst of all the women that you, the Torah doesn't allow us to marry because when a, a Jew marries a shifcha, it's just as when a, a Jew marries a non-Jewish woman and the child is a guy. It's not Jewish. And likewise, when he marries a shifcha, the child becomes a slave. He is part, a half Jew and isn't even related to his father. And that, the Ramam says, is from the worst things you can do. So what's going on over here? How is it that the Torah makes this happen here? And the answer is that this Jew has become a slave. He's been sold as a slave, and a slave is diminished in his quality as a Jew. And once he's been diminished in his quality as a Jew, he can marry a Shifcha Kananis. He's allowed to marry a Shifcha Kananis, and his, his children won't be his children. So the Chavetz Chaim says, look what happened to this person. He stole. 
and he can't pay back. So the Torah says, it's worth it for him to lose the quality of his Judaism for six years. He should become a diminished Jew who can marry a shifcha, who can be forced to marry a shifcha, just so he doesn't remain with someone else's money. That's how bad stealing is in the eyes of the Torah. He says, we don't necessarily share this, uh, this view of the Torah. He says, when, when someone goes and marries a non-Jewish woman, the Jewish community, they cast them out. But if someone steals, they borrow money without intending to pay back, they get caught on fraud, they aren't quite castigated in the same way. But that's not how the Torah looks at it. Someone who steals, it's more appropriate he marry a non-Jewish lady just so he can pay up his debt and not remain with someone else's money. If we think further into this, the Torah is commanding us to make this man a slave. He loses his freedom. Now that is something terrible in its own right, but the Torah gives the man an option to continue his slavery after the six years are up. And if he chooses to continue his slavery from his own free will, the Torah says, you drill through his ear. Make a little hole in his ear. Why? Why do you make a hole in his ear? So Rashi brings down Chazal, that Hashem says, the ear that heard on Har Sinai, Avodaihem, you are my slaves, you are my servants, and you went and made yourself a slave to someone else? For that, the ear has to get a hole. So we see that Jews are servants to Hashem alone. Being a slave is antithetical to being a Jew. Our freedom is so valuable and holy because it's used to serve Hashem. But if a person steals, he's demoted to being a slave. This gives us a feeling for how the Torah wants us to respect other people's money. In a way, there's a certain justice to the fact that a person becomes a slave to a man when he steals. When someone steals, Rashi brings down in this, week, this week's parsha that it's true he's committing a sin, a sin of stealing, but it's also an affront to Hashem. Chazal say, Hashem says, you fear the man, and therefore you sneak, and you hide, and you burglarize, but you don't fear me. And therefore Hashem says, truly you are a slave to man, and you're not a slave to me. And that's why he gets sold as a slave, and he loses his freedom. Also, he should not remain with someone else's money. This is the lesson the Torah is trying to teach us here, beginning the parasha, just to demonstrate how important it is to be careful with other people's money. The Chavetz Chaim is super careful about other people's money. He traveled all over Europe, taking orders for his safer, Chavetz Chaim, and then he would deliver it to those people later. But he refused to take money when he took the orders. So his, his son or his son-in-law asked him, why, are you, why don't you take money? When you're taking the orders already, take the money. So the Chafetz Chaim said, well, how do I know what will happen? First of all, I might die, and then I'll be stuck with this money, and who knows if you'll be able to give it back for me. And secondly, he says, the people I took the money for, what happens if they die? And I try to find them, and then I have to track down their Yershim, I have to track down their inheritors, I don't want to be stuck in that situation, so I'm not going to take their money. So his son said, so then why are you bothering to take orders? Just print this for him, travel around Europe, and sell it to whoever wants to buy. So the Chavot Chaim says, I can't print this for him. I don't have money to print this for him. I have to borrow money to print this for him. And how can I borrow money if I don't know that I'm going to sell this for him? That would be fraud. That would be dishonest. I'm not sure I would be able to pay back. So I have to first travel throughout Europe, take the orders, 
just so I know that I'm justified in borrowing money to print those farms because I know I have orders and I'll be able to sell them. The Chavetz Chaim was super mafid on this, and and one time he entrusted one of his children to to uh, sell some of his farm, and he got a complaint from a letter from one of them that the safer he got was defective or was missing a page, and he got so, so upset because he would personally go through every single safer he printed page by page just to make sure there wasn't a page missing to not sell something which is imperfect. The famous story that the Chavetz Chaim had his daughter, you know, his young daughter, look through the pages, you know, got the whole family helped out going through this farm to make sure that they um, they, they weren't missing a page. And he, he, you know, his daughter, he had asked his daughter to go through, a, I don't know, 10, 10 farm or 12 farm. So she said it was the middle of the winter and it was very, it was normally very cold, but it was just a nice day. So he, he, she asked and it would be okay. I want to go out and play. And when I come back, I'll do 20 farm. And when she came back, there were 20 farm waiting for her. And she, the Chavetz Chaim told her, if a person says something, they have to do it. You have to keep your word. The Chavetz Chaim, I heard this from Rav Hill Zaks, who was a grandson, actual grandson of the Chavetz Chaim, but he was about four years old when the Chavetz Chaim passed away. But he said that his mother told him that the Chavetz Chaim put him on his lap, or Hill Zaks, and he would stroke his hand when he was two years old, and he would say, ah, this is a pure hand because it's a hand that has never taken someone else's money. It's a hand that is not tainted with stealing. That was, that was the Chavetz Chaim. He was so, so, so careful about other people's money and he wrote so many svarim teaching the halachas, paying on time, teaching the halachas of borrowing money, teaching the, the, all, the, all the halachas that people were not so necessarily familiar with when it comes to as far as our financial obligations to other people. And that's the lesson that Torah is trying to teach us, that we, we can't begin to imagine how much importance the Torah gives to respecting other people's money. Have a wonderful Shabbos and a good night.